to me. I'm at the center. Friendships, what are they for? For me to feel accepted, important, or heard. Jobs, they're for my growth. For me to move beyond. School or grades, they're for my success or future. Uh, dating, they're for me to feel loved, worthy, secure. Marriage is for my happiness, to meet my needs. Children are to make up for what's lacking in my marriage, uh, for me to experience through them what was lacking in my childhood. Whatever, you know. What's the running narrative in a severely or extremely individualistic culture? The running narrative is narcissism. So today, the, the problem that we're going to be looking at um, and that we, we see sort of the reverse of in our passage is that although we promote selflessness, we like to say that we're selfless, subconsciously, we see nothing wrong with our daily lives that are focused on ourselves. So we embrace a cultural narrative of narcissism. In an article from uh, Psychology Today titled Narcissism is Alive and Well in America, Dr. Jim Taylor cited two recent studies um, on narcissism. One study found that 30% of young people were classified as narcissistic. Um, that's according to a widely used psych psychological test. The number has actually doubled in the last 30 years. And uh, another study reported that 40 there's a 40% decline among young people in empathy uh, since like the early 1980s. And empathy is a personality attribute inversely related to narcissism. So what are the causes? Well, Dr. Taylor, along with many other psychologists and anthropologists, they suggest three causes. The first one, they say, is celebrity culture. Uh, young people are, are being bombarded by narcissistic messages from celebrity culture 24-7. Uh, you know, through every form of media. And the, the majority of messages they receive are actually encouraging narcissism. Uh, another one is the, the number two is the self-esteem movement. Uh, psychological movement that started in the late 1970s and focused on self-esteem and it's likely contributed to the increase in self-adoration. Uh, many parents these days do everything they can to make their children feel good about themselves and the result has been a decline an actual real self-esteem, um, and an increase in self-love, and unjustifiable personal sort of exceptionalism, where everybody gets a trophy, you know, all of those things. And then the third one is technology and social media. You know, all of the time spent absorbed in screens has reduced the amount of actual human face-to-face -face interaction that children have, thus sort of depriving them of the experiences needed to develop essential social skills such as empathy, compassion, consideration for others. However, while each of those sort of has their merits, I'd like to argue for another cause. That cause being our grand narrative. We all live with a sense of story. We tend to make ourselves the main character of that story as well. And when everyone is the main character and the main point of their story, well, everything is about me. And that's the root of narcissism. But Jesus Christ, by his life, his death, and resurrection, offers us a new identity in him. And a place and a far grander narrative, the story of God, 
redeeming the world. And in this grand narrative, God is creating in us together a new society, a culture whose fabric is not marked by narcissism, but by something else. In today's passage, Paul lays out what the fabric of this new society is, exemplified in several relationships. Um, look with me at, at this brief overview of Ephesians to see what I mean. Oh, good, you have it. Great. So, you know, in Christ, you know, Ephesians 1 through 3, as Pastor Phil has taken us through Ephesians, we've seen in Christ we have a new identity. You know, we're destined uh, for, for greatness in Christ. We're, we're adopted. We're justified. We are heirs with Christ. And so then, because of that, there is a new society, the church, the building of God, as it said in chapter 2, that represents Christ to the world, that the world themselves might be reconciled to God. And so then, when we got to Ephesians 4, and it started to get into, well, here's who you are, and we move to, here's what to do, we see that we are representing Christ as his people, as his new society, to the world by unity. You know, as you know, Phil talked to, did that sermon on, on our gifts and using them to build up into unity. Um, and then in the, you know, in the passages after that, us putting on our new self and walking in it. Um, also a way that we represent Christ to the world. And then today we're going to be looking at Mutual submission. And that sounds weird. And it's like, what are you talking about, Danny? That's strange. I don't even like the word submit. Me neither. You know, uh, but stick with me on this. And then in the next week, Phil will get back to how, how we represent Christ in the world as we battle against Satan. All right. So the main idea of our passage is that our new identity in Christ has spawned this new society, the church, you, us, which represents Christ to the world through mutual submission. What does that even mean? All right, look with me at verse 21, where, you know, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And verse 21 is a transitional verse from one section to the next, and it, it sets the agenda for the three relationships that will be discussed in our passage. What we will see is that since we belong to Christ, and as the church are part of his grand narrative, certain things we have sort of tended to put our hope into in the past. Things like marriage, family, work, are no longer an end in themselves. But they simply become something through which we picture something far greater, the gospel and the kingdom of God. Our relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that really quickly, so I, I want you to get this. Since we belong to Christ, and as the church are part of his grand narrative, certain things we have tended to put our hope into in the past, like marriage, family, and work, are no longer an end in themselves. But they simply become something through which we picture something far greater the world. The gospel. So, uh, the, in these three sections, what I'm going to get at is our mutual submission, and we'll get into that, is a picture of our submission to Christ. 
in marriage, in family, and in work. What do I mean? In marriage, what are we picturing? Uh, verses 22 through 33, this is the, the section on uh, Christ as the husband and the church as the bride. That is what we are picturing in marriage. So wives serving Christ by respecting their husbands. Very, very little is said other than submitting in verses 22 and 24, which is further explained in verse 33 as respecting her husband. And let each one of you love his wife as he himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what does that mean? It means trusting God makes it easier for you to trust your husband. Not trusting God for your future in the first place, and then adding another person to that equation isn't a good formula. As we submit our lives to Christ, it's much easier to, you know, to respect our husbands, or for me, my wife. But when you submit your heart to the Lord as a daughter with a great destiny, and you begin to trust him for your future, it becomes much easier to respect your husband. So your submission to Christ makes it possible for you to respect your husband. Now why is that hard? Well, for the wife who leans toward being ordered, you don't want to rely on someone who lets you down again and again and again. So you become independent in your thinking because it's safer. Your husband is a liability. Or if, for the wife who feels shame about not having it all together, and you tend to think, I should be able to do this by myself. And so you don't want to acknowledge your limitations or your weaknesses out of a sense of shame. And so people who are filled with shame and try to cover it up, they can't truly be thankful. So you won't show your husband respect. What, what does it look like to respect your husband? I mean, it's as simple as being able to acknowledge the work that they do. Not pretending that your husband or your marriage are perfect because, you know, that's disingenuous. But also not using time around other women as an opportunity to, to rip your husband. And 1 Peter 3, 1, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. A woman I know well who, was, who really began to walk with the Lord closely um, after she was already married supported and respected her really difficult non-Christian husband for many years. And she supported a group of women that met and prayed together called One Without Words, based out of this First Peter 3. And though her husband never came around, some of her other husbands did come to faith. And the witness of her respect for her husband, out of what was clearly a respect and a trust in Christ, had a powerful impact on me and others. You see how when we begin to submit our lives to Christ, and then a wife can respect her husband, it opens up a plausibility for the gospel that maybe that kind of thing could be beautiful. Maybe that it is good. So then husbands serving Christ by loving their wife, what does it mean? Verse 25, husbands, give yourselves up for your wife 
as Christ did for you. So that means self-sacrifice. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Sanctification as a primary goal of a husband. Not his wife's immediate happiness. Verse 28, love their wives as their own bodies. Your wife is as big of, of a priority to you as you are. Verse 29, nourishing and cherishing her. Christ nurtures and cherishes the church. And so your practice of self-sacrificial nurturing and cherishing your wife creates for our narcissistic world the possibility. A possibility in Christ that would otherwise be seen as implausible. But if you've seen it, however imperfectly, the possibility of Jesus Christ's self-sacrificial nurture and cherishing becomes plausible. So what does it look like? Well, one thing my professor from seminary, Jerem Barr, said in his book, Through His Eyes, God's Perspective on Women and the Bible, he said that self-sacrificial nurture and cherishing means that a husband will be encouraging his wife to exercise her authority, her power, her strength, her wisdom, and gifts of creativity to govern creation towards the glory of God. Bars listed these things because that's humankind's original calling to which Christ nurtures us. Another thing, it also looks like husbands not trying to please their wives, not trying to gain brownie points. Making your wife happy is not an end. Truthfully, you don't have the ability to accomplish that. I, I, I should know. Why do men seek to please their wives? Why do they seek brownie points? Narcissism. Narcissists. And, and in seeking constant admiration, the narcissist looks to everyone else to prop up his unrealistic self-image. So he expects others to live for him and to affirm his unrealistic self. He uses others rather than loves them. And when you're just trying to please your wife to make her happy, because then maybe you'll get something back, or you'll feel good about yourself, that's narcissism. But the power to submit to one another in marriage comes from believing in something greater than marriage. From believing that our identity in Christ and by it we are picturing something greater. The relationship between Christ and the church. And so in verse 22, it's not wives submit to your husband as your Lord. No, it's wives submit to your husbands at, um, as to, you know, um, submit to your husband as to the Lord. In verse 29, husbands nourish and cherish your wife just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. It's not just in marriage that we sort of gain this new society, the church, that we're able to represent Christ in the world. But it's also in parent and child relationships. So look at verses 1 through 4. Here we have a picture of God as the Father. One of the greatest reasons people have such difficulty resting in Christ or believing that God is loving is because of our relationships with our parents. If you don't believe me, that's one of the main things that I do 
all week as a campus minister is I have to deal with that brokenness. So, um, look with me at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Growing up, I didn't know that there was a discipline and an instruction that didn't provoke people to anger. I I remember being in my youth minister's office at one point, and um, it was like before my senior year in high school, and I have to tell the story to my students all the time, but because it, this is the thing that connects with them most, but my youth minister sat me down and he said, look, Danny, I want you to know not everyone hates their father. And I said, no, 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 everybody hates their father, you know? Like, I, I've watched Homer Simpson, you know, and it, like, come on, give me a break. And he said, no. And he listed off like seven or eight guys that were friends of mine that I knew that didn't hate their dads. And I thought, oh my gosh. What's going on? Everything that, that I learned from my dad was <laughs> the instruction. It was, it was based out of anger. And so discipline and instruction weren't something beautiful that I loved they were something that I feared. So children, what does it mean for you? Kids that are still in here. Follow them in. Do you hear me? Alright. It says, obey your parents. But how? In the Lord. You know, first, even by mentioning children and household commands, Paul was granting them dignity. An affirming position as value. Uh, You know, one commentary I read mentioned that no other list of household structural commands in the ancient world even made a note of children, but Paul does. Secondly, Paul motivates them to obedience by reminding them that obeying their mother or their father is actually a command from God found in the Ten Commandments, and it's the one that promises them a blessing. So when they submit themselves to their parents, they're actually serving Christ. Not just some selfish parent. And God will bless them for it. So students and children, young men and women, there are times when your parents will mistreat you. When they will not understand you. When they will discipline you harshly and out of anger rather than love. But you serve Christ when you honor them. God is your true Father, and He is loving, and you belong to Him. And your friends will know that you belong to a new, different society when you show respect for your parents rather than rebellion. I was so convicted the other day when I had disciplined Coleman in anger, and he came to me the next night. And then my kid is not a saint. I mean, he's a, he's a saint in terms of, you know what I mean. But um, he came to me, and he hugged me when he, before he was going to bed, and he put his head against my head, and he said, I love you, Dad, after I had 
rebuked him harshly. And it led me to repentance. Children can be a witness to their parents. They can be a witness to their friends. They can be a witness to the world that God is a good father. Second, parents. How do, they, how do you serve Christ? By calming instruction. What provokes children to anger? Parents trying to control their children, to maximize family honor, to manipulate the direction and, or social trajectory of their lives. Not, you know, how about not allowing the dignity and the desires of the children to be considered? Anger comes from parents roadblocking the goals and the desires of their children, acting only in the perceived best interest of family honor and exploiting the weaker position of their children. But the reality is that children aren't for parents. It's the other way around. Children are supposed to grow up and grow away and cling to someone else. Parents living through their kids is a perfect example of narcissism in our culture. How does my child reflect on me? Or I crave for them to do the things I wish I could have done and be the person I wish I could have been. That's living through your child. The narcissistic parent breeds narcissistic children. You know, the family revolves around getting the parents' desires and needs met rather than also meeting the needs of the children. This is what I see every day as a campus minister. Trying to earn their parents' approval or to keep their parents happy. Children in these families lose touch with their own needs. They're too busy adjusting to or taking emotional care of their parents' lacks. The biblical pattern of parents meeting their children's needs is actually reversed. The children are psychologically taking care of the parents. And this leaves the child craving to be cared for. But since they aren't, they start seeking constant admiration or success to fulfill their emotional void. So what is God's priority for parents? If it's not to control and manipulate them to bring the family glory or to fulfill their dreams, then what? They must train their children in the way of the Lord. This is a reminder of the stewardship that parents are given, not ownership. Their accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want a bunch of many Danny Clarks walking around the world. We want sons and daughters of God. Parents, you have a heavenly Father who loves you perfectly. So don't look for security in your children. And don't make demands of them that are beyond the instruction of the Lord. I had a good friend in high school named Scott White. And his parents had this old white minivan, and we called it the milk wagon. And we would just pile as many people as we could into it on Fridays and we'd go, or Saturdays, and we'd go and do stuff. And then we, invariably, we'd end up back at his house, where his parents would be hanging out in this kitchen with this giant table that they had bought that they didn't need that much space, but they had bought that table because they longed for their kids' friends to come to the house. And we would sit at this table and talk and hang out with their parents 
and we would feel not like they were older person looking down on us, but brother or sister in Christ that cared about us. Well, one more relationship category through which we get to picture the gospel, the kingdom of God, is through work. And in verses 5 through 9, um, in this section on bond servants and masters, what we have is a picture, we get to picture Christ as Lord. Oh, first, let me, I have to sort of say this because it gets abused all the time. And this passage is misused occasionally for people to say, oh, the Bible was pro-slavery. We, so why would we ever pay attention to the Bible? Well, first, Israel was saved out of slavery from Egypt. Slavery in Israel, it, it was actually uh, done be, either voluntarily or because of debts or enemies, and it only lasted six years, and then on the seventh year, people were given their full rights as citizens no matter what, even if the debt hadn't been paid off. And Paul shows no interest anywhere in his writings in establishing the legitimacy or the beneficiality um, of this relationship as he does with the relationships of husbands and wives and parents and children. He'll go out of his way to root those relationships in the created order and God's perfect plan. He never does that with issues of slavery. And I, I read that a very high percentage of the population of the Roman world would have been slaves, something like 80-something percent. And it's been estimated that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman world in the Apostle Paul's day. They, they weren't just domestic servants, and this wasn't chattel slavery as, as we know it in America. But it involved manual laborers, uh, people who were part of the professional class. There were slave doctors. There were slave teachers. There were slave administrators. Um, and so they were professional classes that were involved in slavery. However, slaves were dehumanized. They were considered things, property. In fact, Aristotle couldn't contemplate friendship with a slave because a slave was merely a living tool. So how does this section relate to our lives? Well, we all have daily lives in which we work. And almost all of us have authorities over us or workers under us. But as members of this new society, the church, it is here that we have the opportunity to picture for the world Christ as Lord. And so in verses 5 through 9, it, you know, it talks about workers are, are called to serve their boss out of a sincere service to Christ. Uh, in verse 5, you know, it talks about, well, actually, uh, it talks about fear and trembling. And there's a parallel passage in Colossians that has the same things, except it says fearing the Lord. And in verse 5, when it says with a sincere heart, it also translates not just sincere heart, but with a singleness of heart without ulterior motives or hypocrisy, wholeheartedness with integrity. And, the, the, and the, the key phrase in verse 5 is, as you would Christ. And in verse 6, it says, not with eye service or as men pleasers, working only you know, when the boss is looking or in order to gain his favor. You know, sometimes we serve people just to please them. 
to get in their good graces, to earn their affirmation. And when we do that, we're actually doing it only for ourselves. That's still narcissism. Uh, one psychologist said the narcissistic person fails to develop his true God-given self and shifts his energies into becoming the kind of person he thinks he must be in order to feel good about himself. Someone that everyone will admire and affirm. But Paul is telling us to work for our bosses while really underneath Verse, says, verse 7 says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Rarely do I meet people who talk about the good work that my Christian friends do. If it's clear in our minds that our primary responsibility is to serve Christ, so as verse 8 says, you know, will reward us back for whatever we do, whatever good we do. Whether it's now or in the age to come, and our service to earthly masters becomes, should become exemplary because Christ is a good Lord. Additionally, if we know that we're serving Christ and not man, it's easier for us to also draw proper boundaries and work. Sometimes to tell your boss, no. It's easy to think this person has my future in their hands, so I must do all that they demand. But in a world without boundaries, where everyone is scrambling to do whatever they can to succeed, it's an amazing picture to see someone choose God over their boss's demands for esteem their success. But in order to either faithfully serve an evil boss or draw healthy boundaries with work, you must know and believe that you're truly serving Christ. That he is your good Lord. So then bosses, verse 9, the very end, it said, you know, serving Christ knowing that you have a master in heaven. One commentator noted, those who are given leadership positions demonstrate their submission by becoming servant leaders, motivated by love. In general terms, submission is demonstrated upward, you know, toward those in authority over us by fear or respect or obedience, while submission is demonstrated downward toward those under our authority by a spirit of servanthood, which is evident in our leadership. People put in places of authority tend to think that they deserve it. And that's why in verse 9 it says, knowing that he who is both your worker's master and your master is really in heaven and that the Lord doesn't show partiality, doesn't identify you as better than other people just because he's placed you in a place of authority. So Paul also highlights that people in authority tend to abuse that authority. They use fear or, as it says in verse 9, threats as a motivator. But that's an abuse of power. In any place where you have authority, are you clearly a servant leader? Students, in your group of friends, where your opinions carry weight, are you a servant leader? Kids, 
in your relationship with your brother, younger brothers and sisters? Are you a servant leader? Adults, could it be in your relationships with co-workers or discipling younger Christians? Are you a servant leader? Where do you have influence? Where do you have authority? It's in these places that because we belong to Christ and are part of his new society, we can denounce any right to feeling elitism, knowing that we have a good, kind, self-sacrificing Lord ourselves. And we can picture for the world what it looks like for Christ to be Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the new identity that you've given us has spawned a new society, and here we are, your church. And you've allowed us to represent you to the world through this weird thing called mutual submission. Lord, in our marriages, may our mutual submission prepare people to see the beauty Jesus, your relationship to us, the church. In our families, may our mutual submission prepare people to see the beauty of you, God, as our Father. And in our work, may our mutual submission prepare people to see the beauty of Jesus Christ as the Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.